0: This morning, a lot of time in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, continuing in in Amos this morning in chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, and the hard word. Now just to bring us up to speed really quickly, the condition of Israel and the word of the Lord that is coming to them is due to the sins of the very first king of the northern kingdom Jeroboam the first who did not simply bring the people away from the Lord into some kind of demonic paganism but instead Jeroboam refashioned God in the manner that he thought he needed him to be. And having the immutable standard of righteousness removed from the midst of the nation, they immediately fell into the vilest of depravity, a madness of believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth that the Lord set before them. And so after centuries of this, during the reign of Jeroboam II, his namesake, and two years before the earthquake, Amos, the shepherd from Tekoa, just outside of Jerusalem, saw a word. The Lord roared from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers when a very partial God shows no partiality. For there is an anger that comes out of love stronger than any that has ever come out of hate. Thus says the Lord to Israel, Hear this word, you cows, Not simply an insult, but instead a statement of their spiritual reality. Because out of all the people of the earth, he knew them. Because he knew them, they would meet him. Yahweh, the very God of hosts, the God of armies, the God of war. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Not because he doesn't know you, but because he does because he does know them, because he is intimate with them, the virgin Israel is not simply breaking his law, they are breaking his heart. One of the great truths we see in Amos is that if you're going to place your trust somewhere, you had better know who you're trusting and not just think that you know. For these very people desired the day of the Lord. They desired it, not unto their salvation, but instead unto their destruction. Because while they believed they knew the Lord whose day it would be, in reality they did not. And so the Lord said to them rightly well, hate evil and love good. But instead, they loved evil and they hated good. And so the word, Lord's word to them through Amos is a word of woe. Woe to you for justice will roll down it will turn itself upon you like water woe indeed particularly to those in israel who were the least willing to be woeful those who thought that they felt at ease those that feel easy that feel secure and yet their feelings do not match reality for they are neither easy nor secure we ask ourselves, why in the world would you place yourself into such denial when that denial is inevitably going to lead to your destruction? How can you do that? The answer is because they bring their God in their own hand, a God that they've shaped for themselves and have called it, thy Elohim who brought you out of Egypt, a God that's made after their image and their liking. And when your God looks an awful lot like you, you end up in turn looking awfully righteous, when in actuality you're not. Such provocation will make a holy God swear, and swear he does. And having no one greater to swear by, he swears by him. Okay, guys, hang on just a second. that's unpleasant but it's better than sneezing into a condenser mic <clears throat> so <laughs> you know i didn't have allergies until i was in my 30s and my wife didn't have allergies until just recently and now she's it's, i don't know why that happens You getting old falling apart okay <sighs> like a holy god swear make a preacher sneeze <clears throat> golly my eyes are still <clears throat> <clears throat> such provocation will make a holy God swear and having none greater to swear by he swears by himself he swears the promise to his people he swears salvation according to himself and he swears death to those who would trample the word of grace underfoot by himself for the Lord disciplines those he loves Hebrews chapter 12 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He will go on there in Hebrews to say, if the Lord doesn't discipline you, if your father doesn't discipline you, that is because you're an illegitimate child. Good discipline includes pleasant things, like encouragement and teaching. It includes more difficult things like reproof and rebuke. And if gone unheeded to the point that an apostasy that God says will not happen is actually about to happen, it will lead ultimately to death. The Lord will take his people to himself before he lets the promise fail. national Israel has committed the sin unto death. And so, the judgment that Amos saw was not by locust, and it was not by fire, against which Amos pleaded with the Lord much. But it wasn't going to be those things instead the judgment that the Lord God would bring upon Israel the judgment that Amos saw was nothing less than the plumb line of righteousness that is Jesus Christ himself the way that Israel was going to be judged were they gonna they were going to be judged by God by the standard of God and that makes fire and locusts look tame by comparison Amos had to accept. Amos had to come to a place of trust. I Man, we throw around the words about faith in God, but when it comes down to what Amos is dealing with right here in chapter 7, this is where we, when we figure out how much faith does the prophet actually have. You have to accept. You have to trust. You have to have legitimate faith that God is good and he knows what he's doing when he requires incredibly hard, violent things out of you unto those around you. And Amos's response in chapter 7, in verses 7 through 9, is this. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. And unlike the plagues of locust and fire that the Lord had proposed before, Amos' response is not one of pleading with God that it wouldn't be. For the judgment is... Christ Himself. How do you plead with the Lord that He not be the Lord? (laughs) How do you plead with the God of Israel when the judgment for Israel is the God of Israel? How do you plead with Him not to be that? Amos remains silent before the Lord and then moves into the clear preaching of that very hard word to Israel her false priests, and her rebellious king. He preaches a word that is so hard, it is unbearable for the land to take. In Amos chapter 7, verse 10 through 13. And then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. And so here you have Amos and he sees the word of the Lord that is the Lord. And Amos begins in faithfulness to declare that message. And here you have Amaziah, the false priest of Bethel the one that is tending for this very golden calf of which generations before Jeroboam I had set it up and said, "Here, O Israel, is thy Elohim who led you out of Egypt. And he is ministering and he is serving before this abomination and he's leading the people of Israel into that abominable service. And he writes to the king. And he says, What Amos is saying the land cannot bear. Why? He cannot bear it for Bethel is the king's sanctuary and the king's temple. Well the king's indeed, it certainly isn't God's. It's not his sanctuary, it's not his temple. His sanctuary and his temple sets in Jerusalem, the very one that Jeroboam I was scared to death that if people pursued the worship of the one true God, their heart would be turned away from him and his kingdom and be given back to the house of Judah. Amaziah is angry and he writes to the king because, not because God's being spoken against, but because it's the king's temple and the king's sanctuary it's being spoken against what you have here is worship of god as long as it's on the government's terms once again to remind you in first kings 12 jeroboam said in his heart now the kingdom will turn back to the house of david if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the lord at jerusalem then the heart of this people will turn again to their lord to rehoboam king of judah and they will kill me and return to rehoboam king of judah And so the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your Elohim, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What you have here is not the reign of David. What you have here is not governance that is existing as the will of God for the glory of God. Instead, what you have is false religion and false God that exists to serve the will of the king and the government. And so you can worship, you're even encouraged to worship as long as you worship on the terms that the king has set. Now you'll notice, you'll notice kind of the political bend to this because immediately what does Amaziah do he does not contend with the prophet one-on-one at the beginning he's going to but the first thing he does is run not to a higher spiritual power to plead his case this is not what's going on with Gideon that we've been looking at in the book of Judges on Wednesday nights where it says hey man Gideon's dad comes out and says hey man he tore down the altar of Baal and y'all want to kill him but if Baal's God let Baal contend with him if Baal's really God shouldn't be a problem let him have at it. That's not what Amaziah does. He doesn't go to thy Elohim, O Israel, this golden calf that led you out of Egypt and plead his case against what he would claim was a dangerous and false prophet. Instead, he goes to immediately to human authority. He goes immediately to the king. And there even seems to be a little bit of elevation of rhetoric, a little bit of brinksmanship, or what we used to, you know, calling the playground back in the day, playing chicken, right? There seems to be a little elevation of rhetoric, a little brinksmanship going on here because at a first glance kind of cursory reading, it seems like Amaziah is saying things that Amos said that's actually kind of a step beyond what Amos said. I mean, in verse 9, Amos prophesies what the lord told him that i will rise against the house of jeroboam with a sword now that is a broad statement but when amaziah writes to the king in verse 10 he said that amos is saying that jeroboam personally himself will die by the sword and so you look at that and you go okay well obviously this is you know this is a nasty mixture of you know political power, and, and false religion. And so is that kind of what we're seeing here? I mean, good grief, politicians do all this all the time. You know, they will they will take some point of, of, of those who oppose them and and elevate that to an absurd level, and it's actually called the fallacy of absurdity. They'll elevate that to an absurd level and then attack the absurdity, right? And so is that what he's doing here? I think it's a legitimate question, but ultimately I don't think it's what he's doing here instead i think what you're seeing here is a much more developed picture than what you can just get in a brief narrative what i mean by that is this is this conflict and this struggle that has been going on between the one true god Yahweh of Israel and this blasphemous false imitation of him, that conflict, the spiritual reality at its base and the men in which this is being played out in, the men of God and the men of this world, this has been going on now for centuries. It's been going on for generations and the reality is this. Revelation chapter 19 verse 10 I was going to quote this last week. I want to quote it this week. Man, when you look at the plumb line, and we went to, through all the trouble to look at Isaiah and say, look, man, this is Christ. The fact of the matter is, is we shouldn't be surprised it's Christ. It's funny to me the way that dispensationalism has done so much damage in the church that when you, when you start pointing out Christ in the Old Testament to people, it's like they're shocked that he would be there. Friends, he's always there. He said to the Pharisees, he said to the Jews, he said, you search this book, you search these scriptures because you think that in them is eternal life. He said, they speak about me. At the time, not one single bit of the New Testament had been written yet. He was talking completely about what we call the Old Testament. He says, man, this stuff's all about me. You know why it's all about him? Because his spirit, the Holy Spirit is the spirit by which prophecy comes prophecy comes by the spirit of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 19 verse 10, the angel tells John that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy exists to testify to Jesus Christ. Prophecy doesn't exist to tell you that it's not going to rain for seven years. Now it may tell you it's not going to rain for seven years, but that's not why it exists. It exists to point And testify to Jesus Christ. So when you have a spirit that is speaking through his prophet, and the men of God speak only by one spirit his second letter Peter says in chapter one that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the spirit when you have a bunch of men over the course of time that are all speaking by one spirit that spirit is the spirit of Jesus Christ and the whole point of him speaking prophetically is to pay testimony to Jesus you got a bunch of men, you've got one God, you've got one Savior, you've got one Spirit, and you've got one topic. When that happens, all of those men end up saying a whole bunch of the same thing. Because it's all coming from the same source. Friends, this isn't the first time that Amaziah or any other prophet at Bethel or any other of the kings of northern Israel have heard a similar word from the Lord. Man, these prophets have been screaming this stuff at them since the, since literally the very first day that Jeroboam I set up the golden calf. Like on the first day. Like at the christening. Since then, they've been screaming at them what is coming. And the, the testimony is always the same. The sin unto death brings death. While God may tolerate an apostate king, he will not let the nation of Israel become apostate, lest the promise fail. There have been a bunch of guys that have been saying a bunch of the same things for a long time. Amaziah knows the content. He understands the meaning because they have lived the history For those that bring their God in their hand, the word of the Lord is death to both their God and by extension to them. And if you're going to see this, we've got to go back once again, all the way back to the beginning and look at the example of Jeroboam the first, because this didn't start with Jeroboam the second. In first Kings chapter 13, in verse 33, we're going to read a lot today. So you guys hang in there. In verse 33 all the way through chapter 14, verse 18. After this thing, that thing being the erection of these golden calves and this statement that this, O Israel, is thy God that led you out of Egypt, and a little bit extra that comes in between there out of that that we're going to look at in just a moment. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. But he made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priest of the high places. And this thing became a sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. You got this false religion that is being headed up by this power hungry king and his boy is sick. And when your child is sick and you must simultaneously protect the own, your own lie that you believe is underpinning your kingdom. Then what you end up doing is going to the truth in secret which is exactly what Jeroboam would do. And so Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. And find, or behold, Ahijah the prophet is there. Him who said to me that I should be king over this people, take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so she arose and went to Shiloh and she came to the house of Ahijah and now Ahijah could not see for his eyes were dim because of his age and the Lord said to Ahijah behold the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son for he is sick and thus you shall say to her. She came and pretended to be another woman, but when Ajah heard the sound of her feet as she came to the door, he said, "Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. You see, when Amos spoke, it wasn't the first time that the land and the king of Israel had received unbearable news from the Lord. Go. Tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, and go to your house. And when your feet enter the city, the child shall die. You go, man, that's pretty rough. No, that part is actually mercy and grace. Here's why. All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave. He's the only one that's going to get buried. The rest are going to be eaten by dogs and birds. They're going to get to bury him because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and rooted up Israel out of its good land that he gave to their fathers and scattered them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger, and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. And then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tizra or Tirza, excuse me, and she came to the threshold of the house. The child died. All Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word the Lord of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. Okay, so he says, "I have an unbearable word for you, and here it is." And and the good news is the the, the boy's going to die. That's the good news. That's how unbearable the word that's coming for the house of Jeroboam is. The good news is I'm going to go ahead in mercy and take that infant home because there is something in him that is pleasing to me he is the lord's elect <laughs> and so i will take him to be with me he's not going to have fallen him what's going to fall on all the rest of you and that is grace because here's what's coming for you what's coming for you is that you're all going to be dung and you're all going to be the dung of unclean animals You're going to be the kind of dung that if someone gets it on them, they can't even come into the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. They're not even supposed to come into the camp until they've been ritually purified. This is what I'm going to do with you. Not one of the house of Jeroboam, other than this child, will go to the grave. If they fall in the city, the dogs are going to eat them. Right there in the street. If in the open country, it'll be the birds that pick their bones white. And you will be scattered as something that no one wants to get on the bottom of their sandal across the streets and across the plains. And who will this come to? Well, dung is well rendered. Verse 10. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. So, okay, who does this apply to? He tells Jeroboam that your fate to become dung that will eventually not only is it dung from an unclean animal, but then we're gonna pile it all up when we're done and burn it. I mean, like this is, you know, this is what we call insult to injury, absolute judgment. It's amazing that the it's amazing that the mortality rate's only 90%. Doug is well rendered. Every man in Israel is not. As a matter of fact, when it says in verse 10 that I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, Jeroboam and I will cut off from Jeroboam every man, i got to tell you, it's not only a bad translation, it's a coward's translation. I mean, at this point, I love the ESV man, but they blew it. Like, it's not even close. Not even close. doesn't mean anything what it says. doesn't mean anything what it says. It, you could look at the ESV at this point. And it's not just the ESV; it's every single major modern translation, every one. If you look at if you look at it, you might say, "Well, we've moved from you know formal equivalence to dynamic equivalence." So, if you if you if you look at Bibles that are available, there's there's basically kind of two schools of thought in the way that you. That you translate scripture, formal equivalence, what you do, you do the best you can in formal equivalence to, to to take the, the words in the Hebrew or the Greek and bring them as precisely into English as you can do that. Um, that those Bibles are very good for studying. Sometimes they're a little difficult for some people to read because... The fact of the matter is is that translating languages especially when they're separated by huge cultures and millennia of time um, is not as simple as using the decoder ring out of the cracker jack box right there's some difficulty there so it makes them kind of hard to read dynamic equivalence means you get kind of the idea of the text and you bring that in as the translation and it's smoother and it communicates easier and it's easier to read and those sorts of things the problem with that is is you really have kind of a tight commentary on the word of god you don't actually have the word of God itself and so you would like to be able to say that that you know here's where these formal equivalence bibles kind of stray off into dynamic equivalence they do that every now and then a passage gets particularly difficult to understand and they want to kind of smooth those things out but they don't even do that here it's just translated wrong it doesn't say anything about a man now the inference is that it is men that is being spoken of he's not talking just about any men or group of men or the men in israel Instead, the Hebrew here is mastin bekir. And I would like to tell you it, so, bekir is a wall. A wall. Wall to your house, wall around a city, a wall to keep your sheep in the sheepfold, whatever. Bekir is a wall. Used hundreds, thousands of times, maybe, in the Old Testament. Mastin It's only used six times. And I would tell you, it means to urinate. So it's, he says, I'm going to kill every one of yours that urinates against the wall. Except for the fact of the matter is, is urine or urinate wouldn't be the right translation either. Because the word here in the Hebrew, if you look it up, it'll have a note beside it that says, To excrete water, to urinate, parentheses, obscenity. So urinate doesn't get it done either. As a matter of fact, every time it's used six times in Scripture, each time it is part of a prophetic oath of violent judgment to those who are the enemies of God as much as i often dig on the king james the fact of the matter is is the king james is the only major translation with the guts to be faithful to what the holy word of god actually says and so here it is out of first kings chapter 14 verse 10 through 11 Out of the King James Version, Therefore, behold, I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off Jeroboam from him that pisses against the wall. And him that is shut up and left in Israel, I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam, as a man taketh away dung till it be all gone. Him that dieth of Jeroboam in the city shall the dogs eat, and him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat, for the Lord hath spoken it. Buddy, you don't want the word of the Lord that he speaks to you to be every single one of you that pisses against the wall. I'm going to kill and not one of you will see the grave. If you fall in the city, you will become the dung of dogs. If you fall in the field, you will become the dung of fowl of the air of carrion. And what's left of it, I will scrape together and burn. Now, how about that for Judgment. You know, Mastin against the wall is still highly frowned upon. They'll write you a ticket for it right now. The word of the Lord came to the people of Israel, and one of the things he said is you don't You don't do your business in camp. No excrement in camp bad idea. Deuteronomy chapter 23. You shall have a place outside the camp and you shall go out to it and shall have a a trowel with your tools. And when you sit outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Now, I know a lot of guys that will focus on this Old Testament stuff and what they want to focus on is, man, the Lord gave us such a good law and if he gave us a good law, wouldn't you think that that law would be the healthiest, best law you could have and so we can look at food laws and we can look at, at cleanliness laws and here's a prime example, man. Everybody knows that it's a good idea not to do your business in camp. You need to go outside of camp to do that. It keeps down disease. It keeps down vermin. It keeps down lots of unpleasantness. You need to take it out there. You need to take your trail, You need to dig your you need to cover it up when you're done because the lord your god is being good to you by making things clean and sanitary for you friends i have no problem with that concept whatsoever guess what the lord did a lot of good stuff for the people of israel by keeping things clean and sanitary for them but if you think that was the point of what god was doing you have missed the boat so far that you're not even near the seashore this is what he says why will you dig the hole and cover it up because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. The issue is not whether or not it keeps flies down. The issue is that you serve a holy God. And you are a common, fallen, and vulgar creature. And there's things that come with that emotionally, spiritually, and yes, even physically that demonstrate that fallenness and the holy God who is in your midst doesn't want to see it. But these guys, as is evidenced of the fact that they bring their God in their hand, they'll do whatever vulgar thing is convenient for them and call it God's will. So if I want to sure i get it right here in the hebrew i'll try to move away from the english if i want to mastine against the wall then god says that's fine for me to do he looks just like me the lord says i'll have nothing you think you think that's vulgar i'll make you vulgar i'll make you dong and vulture dong ain't nobody want to be that See the fulfillment, at least the first portion of it, of this prophecy to the wife of Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 15. By the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 25, it is now Jeroboam's son, Nadab, who is sitting on his father's throne. And Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel for two years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And Basha, the son of Aisha of the house of Isjar, conspired against him. And Baasha struck him down at Gib. which belonged to the Philistines. For Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibthon. And so Basha killed him in the third year of Asa the king of Judah and reigned in his place and as soon as he was king he killed all the house of jeroboam he left to the house of jeroboam not one that breathed and he, until he had destroyed it according to the word of the lord that he spoke by his servant ahijah the shilonite and it was for the sins of jeroboam that he sinned and that he made israel to sin because of the great anger because of the anger to which he provoked the lord the god of israel So here you have this prophecy, it comes to Jeroboam's wife, and she goes back in the first the first part of that prophecy is fulfilled and the child immediately dies. It is a testimony to the fact that the fullness of the prophecy is true. And then just a few years later in the second year of the reign of his son, the house of Jeroboam the first is destroyed utterly by Bashar and everything that the Lord said about the fall of the house of Jeroboam has come to be because he did this detestable thing. And yet, if that wasn't enough, God is not even close to being finished yet. You're like, man, what else is there to do? (laughs) Right? What else is there to do? I mean, you know, I mean, he's dressed them down in a pretty vulgar manner. He has fulfilled his word to turn them into dung that is then collected and burned. It is over. Jeroboam's entire lineage lasts two guys and only two years on the boy. And that's it. And it's over and done. It's not over and done. If you look back in 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 14 through 16, where we just read a few minutes ago, you'll notice that the Lord says this, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. So, in the immediate context, he is going to raise up this king. It's going to be Basha, and he is going to cut off and put to the sword the house of Jeroboam. That's over. That's happening now, and it did. And henceforth, that that's yet to come, Henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Frades because they have made their Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger, and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. And so this prophecy has got at least two layers to it at this point. Here's what's going to happen today. Here's what's going to happen in the immediate context. The house of Jeroboam is going to be cut down he will not have one left they will be destroyed and the Lord did it but there's something else coming something coming henceforth something coming that has more to do with than just with the house of Jeroboam but instead with the entire nation they will be shaken like a reed they will be taken into exile they will be removed from the good land that God has given them why why The doctrinal background is in Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26, in verses 27 through 30. When the Lord is speaking to the people of Israel about how they will be blessed if they obey and how they will be punished if they disobey, he says this, In spite of this, you will not listen to me, but you will walk contrary to me. In spite of the fact that I brought you into a good land, in spite of the fact that I've sent prophets to you to tell you my word, in spite of all of this gracious stuff that I've been doing to bring you to myself, in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me. Then I will walk contrary to you. Now look, Us walking contrary to God is like shooting Red Rider BBs at a battle tank. God walking contrary to us is like being run over by a battle tank. Especially when he walks contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins, and then he says, here's how it's going to look. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. Whoa. Whoa. So the Lord tells him, I'm gonna, you're, you're going to stray and I'm going to do all this stuff to bring you back. And in spite of all this mercy and all this grace, you're going to continue to do it. You're going to walk contrary to me. And because of that, I'm walking contrary to you in fury. You will be put in a position that is so difficult that you will eat the flesh of your sons and daughters. This was fulfilled during both the Assyrian uh, sieges as well as the seas of Jerusalem by the Babylonians that is, that is soon to come. And he says this, he says, I will cast your dead bodies on the dead bodies of your idols. Now, now we're getting down to what's going on here. We said at the beginning that the reason that the word was unbearable for them was because when you are rebelling against a holy God and the word of that holy God comes to you, it will lead to death for both your false God and for you. It leads to death for you and what you're doing and the spiritual reality that is behind what you're doing. And the Lord says, I will kill two things. I'll kill your idols and I will cast your dead bodies upon the altar of your dead idols. You go, well, I mean, what happened with Jeroboam was rough, but it wasn't that rough. You know, we've got dogs and birds eating, folks we got a little bit of rough language, but I mean, we're not stacking up bodies on, you know, the, the altar of, of Baal over here and burning them. Well, we're not doing that yet. But what you'll find is that when the word of the Lord comes, it is fulfilled. There is a particular application to this in 1 Kings chapter 13. Back in verses 1 through 4. Back to the very first day. Remember we said that when Amaziah starts making these charges against Amos, he's not making it out of a vacuum. This word of the Lord that comes to many men by one spirit that is the spirit of Christ and always speaking of the things of Christ means that these guys are going to say a bunch of the same stuff over and over and over. Amaziah had background for what Amos was saying and the background starts right here. Day one... Of the christening of the worship of these golden calves. And in chapter 13, verse 1, behold, the man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. You've got the king himself down here. Hear, O God, hear, o Israel, this is thy Elohim that led you out of Egypt. The man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, Oh, altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. Josiah by name. Man, the Lord through his prophet is calling the name of the king that's going to do these things by name centuries before he's born. And this is not the only time in scripture that he does that. He calls Cyrus by name. you You can look at this and go, well, you know they're all israelites right and so if you've got this prophecy about this king that's coming named josiah that's going to set right all this stuff in northern israel out of jerusalem and out of judah you know there's a pretty good chance if you're a king and you think you know your son's going to be a hot shot that maybe you name your son josiah well i guess maybe so but the fact of the matter is is that's not what happened with cyrus and persia and he did the same thing with him 400 years i believe and so here he is Behold, the son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice you, the priest of the high places, and make, who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, we which he cried against the altar at Bethel. Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he had stretched out again, against him dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. Well, There's the word. Two separate ones. Jeroboam, on one hand, what's going to happen to you is the dogs and the birds are going to eat you and all of your children. Your house, your lineage, will be destroyed, but There's more going on here than just you. And so, there is coming a day when on this altar, these priests will be sacrificed and their bones will be burnt on them. Now, the question is, I think, why the delay between blood and bone? Why the delay between the judgment of the king and the kingdom? Because there's a big gap here big gap hundreds of years and so immediately the Lord comes in and says you know listen Jeroboam you're done man I'm blotting you out like in the current context it's over but then henceforth there is coming this other judgment where Israel will be shaken like a, a reed and she'll be plucked up out of the land and in that plucking up and in all of this doing this very altar right here that you guys are committing all of this blasphemous worship on like you are going to be sacrificed on it your bones are going to be burnt on it And that is to come henceforth down the line. Why the delay between blood and bones? Why the difference between a king and the kingdom and the judgment that comes on them? And I think the answer to that is the difference between an individual king versus the spiritual reality that backs his kingdom. I will take your dead bodies and throw them on the dead idols. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Man, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against, as literally out of the Greek, we wrestle against the first ones, the unhindered ones, the cosmos kretoris, literally means world holder. This is what we wrestle against. The reality is, is there is something in northern Israel that is much more evil than Jeroboam the first. And it is to this reality, to this thing, to this fallen, that the sacrifices are being made, that the blood is being spilt, and it doesn't. Matter. Now, don't get me wrong. God had his judgment on Jeroboam, and Jeroboam got what was coming to him. But as Mark said when we were talking about it this morning, if you think you've cut the head off the snake because Fido got finished chewing on Jeroboam and left him in the street, you have not cut the head off the snake. Jeroboam is just the manifestation. There's something much, much darker, much, much nastier higher orders of creation that exist behind the power of the northern kingdom of Israel. The houses of the kings of Israel that will come after chapter 15 are not bloodline descendants of the house of Jeroboam, but they are absolutely descended from the same spirit. You can look back in 1 Kings chapter 14, and verse 16. The Lord says, I'm going to do this. The part that's coming henceforth because of the sins of Jeroboam, but not just stopping there. They're not just being punished for a past king, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. He's brought the entire nation with him into this. What you're seeing here in northern Israel is the polar opposite of the children of Abraham by faith. Man, in, in, in uh, Galatians chapter... Three verses five through seven. Paul writes and says, "Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracle amongst you amongst you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Man, when you stand before God, me or you may not be able to claim to be the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by blood. Gentile muts, everyone." We may not be able to claim to be his children by blood, but that's fine because that is not the definitive reality by which God reckons the children of Abraham. The definitive reality that reckoned Abraham and reckons his children is the faith that God himself gave them as gift, as part and partial, the down payment of the promise of Jesus Christ. That's what makes them the children of God. Likewise. It is not the blood that coursed through the veins of Jeroboam the first that made these people despicable. It's the spiritual reality that is behind them. And yes, he got what he deserved. When he became what you put in Fido's doggy bag. Well, free ones, they got the part you pull off. He got what he deserved. But he is just the means of the serpent. He's not the serpent itself. And it is alive and well. It is thriving. As a matter of fact, the very one, Bashar, that was the destroyer of Jeroboam and all his household, you would think when you see that prophecy, man, the Lord's going to raise up a king and he's going to cut you off. And man, when this guy comes in and cuts you off, he's going to be completely different than you because he despises you. And here's the guy come running in on the white horse. No, he wasn't. Bashar was just like him. Bashar didn't despise him because he thought he was evil. Bashar despised him because he wanted his throne. This is what it says. 2 Kings chapter 15. No, it's 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 33 through 34. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Bashar, the one that slaughtered all of the house of Jeroboam, Bashar, the son of Aziah, began to reign over all Israel at Tirzah. He reigned 24 years, and guess what? He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. The destroyer of the house of Jeroboam just became a better Jeroboam. He made it 24 years on the throne. All you've got is 2.0. The crazy thing is when you read kings and you read chronicles and you track the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah Israel Judah has a lot of bad kings and the occasional good one every single king of northern Israel that ever set the throne without exception the exact same thing is said about them that they did not return to the Lord, but instead continued in the sin of Jeroboam by which he caused them to sin. Oh, you may have a different face, a different name holding the scepter. But the power lies behind him. The second verse, same as the It is this that must be judged. It is this that must die, so that the dead bodies of the priests can be sacrificed on it. <laughs> How do you end a sermon there? Because if I don't, we will be here till one fifteen. So let's just say this. The Lord has something particular that He is doing. And today it's all vulgar and nasty and judgment. But he has something particular He's doing so particular that he calls him by name centuries before he will be born. A king who will see fit to have the faith of a child because he is a child when the Lord raises him to the throne. In 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 1 through 13 Josiah was 8 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem his mother's name was Jediah the daughter of Ah, come on Tom Adaiah of Boschoth and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord Isn't that refreshing in the midst of all this? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the way of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, if you you studied in Kings and Chronicles... You'll know that both at the beginning and the end of each one of these kings reign, you get an introduction and a summation that are their big picture look at the character of who this king is. And then the narrative begins, okay? So when Josiah's being introduced, man, here's where we get this. Hey, listen, man, this guy, he came to reign when he was eight years old, and, and he walked in the ways of the Lord. He didn't turn to the right or to the left. He, he followed after the way that David followed. He did not depart from the Lord. But it, it's not like Josiah showed up on a that way. <laughs> That's the summation of his reign. The narrative starts in verse 3. In the 18th year of King Josiah, When he's 26, the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azalea, son of Mishulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house. That is to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked of them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. Now, because of the faithlessness of the kings that have come before, the house of the Lord is in in ill repair. And Josiah sets out. The Scripture doesn't tell us why. He doesn't know why yet. We know that. He's doing this out of some motivation that is not the 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 motivation that me or you would normally think of we would normally think well man you know we're we're a people of the lord the house of the lord's in bad shape golly what have we done we got to go down here and get this thing cleaned up that is not why josiah is doing this scripture doesn't tell us why it just tells us that he he's not even close to understanding that yet he's about to be what i would tell you most likely is that the lord put it in his heart to do this thing because in doing this thing he will find salvation both for himself and And for many in his kingdom and abroad. So in verse 8, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Man, they didn't even even know where the, the word of God was. Josiah doesn't even know what it is. And so they go down there to clean this place up, and lo and behold, what do you find? What do you find? The book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king. I mean, can you imagine that? Reading this thing and going, oh no. The secretary came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it to the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book and Shaphan read it before the king now that's a no that's no small thing it's no small thing At the end of Romans we did Romans in one shot one day I'm here to tell you reading the Pentateuch to the king is a job when the king heard the words of the book of the law he tore his clothes and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Achbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Everything changed in Josiah that day. Because of it, everything would change for a time in Judah. Untold multitudes would be saved that would have otherwise been lost. And things will even be changing in Bethel. Amos, the word's hard the land can't bear it. It's going to be ugly. It's going to make you uncomfortable. We're going to talk about vulgar urine and excrements. But trust me, I'm good and I know what I'm doing. Have faith. They're going to hate you for what you say. Do you fear them or do you fear me? Chapter 3, Amos said, The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? That's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we... We thank you for your word, Father. It is heavy. It is hard. It is unbearable for those that would contend against you when you contend against them in fury, Lord. But for your people, it is goodness and grace and salvation, not simply in easy times, but in the most difficult of times. So, Lord, I pray that you steal our faith, that you steal our resolve, Lord, that you make us like Amos and those that would put their faith and their trust in you, even when you demand difficult, no impossible things of us. Lord, we pray we know you're faithful. Lord, we pray that you would find us to be, that you would be glorified, and in doing so, that salvation would come to the lost, maybe even today. Lord, and that your people would be sanctified to look more and more like you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.